You're listening to an ACCA podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to ACCA and welcome to Public Media and Comparative Monument, which is our final public program for our current exhibition, Tom Nicholson Public Meeting. My name is Adriana. I'm the curator of public programs here at ACCA. I would just like to take a moment to acknowledge the Boon people who are the traditional owners and sovereign custodians in the land in which we are meeting today. Along with the Wurundjeri and all Kulin Nations, I would like to also extend our respects to Elders past and present and to all First Nations people that may be in the audience today. The talk today will take as its starting point two key works that are in this room from Tom Nicholson's exhibition, Comparative Monument Shalau, 2014-17, which draws on the complex history of the Shalau mosaic uncovered by Australian soldiers in Palestine during First World War and subsequently installed at the Australian War Memorial in Canberra, and Comparative Monument, Maham Allah, 2014, which articulates historical links between Jerusalem and Australia through the depiction of Red River Gums in both places. Today we are very grateful to have the artist Tom Nicholson here with us, and we also welcome three special guests who will be talking with him this afternoon. We have Ryan Johnson on the end there, Dr. Michaela Sahar here, and Dr. Geordie Silverstein in the middle there. So Ryan, Johnson experience, Ryan Johnson's experience in the museum and university sector spans more than 17 years, and in 2018, he was appointed the director of Buxton Contemporary. From 2012 to 2018, he was head of art at the Australian War Memorial, where he oversaw one of the most significant collections of Australian art ranging from the 19th century to the present day. His research focuses on post-war and contemporary art, and he is the author of recent texts of artists including Fiona Hall, Douglas Watkin, and Tom Nicholson, among others. Dr. Michaela Sahar is an Australian-Palestinian poet and researcher, trained in law, history, and literature. Michaela completed a PhD at the University of Melbourne on Israeli national narrative and Western media coverage in the 21st century. This work was particularly concerned with the elision of the Palestinian narrative and the possibilities of its recuperation. In addition to academic publications, Michaela is an occasional commentator on the politics of the Israel-Palestinian question. And finally, Dr. Jordana Silverstein is an ARC postdoctoral research associate based in the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Melbourne, researching the history of Australian child refugee policy from 1970 to the present. Her research more generally has focused on questions of belonging, nationalism and identity, which she primarily investigated through the lens of Australian Jewish history. She is the author of Anxious Histories, narrating the Holocaust in Jewish communities at the beginning of the 21st century. So today we hope to talk for about an hour. We will hear from each of our speakers. We'll have a little bit of discussion and then maybe then we'll have time for a few questions from the audience. We are recording this discussion today for our podcast series. So when we do questions, um, it would be great if you could speak into the microphone and I'll be bringing the microphone around to you. So just wait for me to come around. Um, for now, I'll hand over to Tom to start our discussion, and could you please all join me in welcoming our speakers for today. Thank you, and thank you all for coming, um, and thanks to the three speakers for agreeing to give up this Saturday afternoon. Um, I thought I would just talk very briefly to introduce the two works that are, that are in this room, and that in a way form at least a starting point for 
the talks that you'll, that you'll hear this afternoon and for the conversation that will, will follow. Um, and I, I don't want to talk for too long because I'd really mostly want to hear what these three people have got to say, but I thought for those of you who don't um, know these works or haven't had the chance to look at them, it's a chance just to introduce them to you and to describe a little bit how um, the works came into being. So I'll just talk very briefly about these. Um, I might start with the work which chronologically is first, which is the work which begins behind me and actually runs through these entire three spaces. Um, and as Adrienne mentioned, this work really begins with the strange appearance of eucalyptus trees in a particular site in Jerusalem. And it was like many artworks, I think it really began with a kind of serendipitous encounter uh, when I was in Jerusalem making a work which is not in this exhibition, the first work which I ever made in that uh, context. And I was just walking um, really without any particular intention except to explore that amazing place. And I came across this site with these very, very towering and monumental river red gums. And it's funny sitting right here in this spot because, of course, the painting that I can see through this doorway, which many of you will have already have seen, Evening Shadows by H.J. Johnson's depicts those very trees, which is not an accidental sight line. Um, but it was very, very arresting. I mean, and I'm sure some of you have had this experience as well, where you see eucalyptus trees in other contexts, that it's a very, very strange experience. And in this context, it was particularly odd because they're so large and monumental in a way that they are in that landscape there, um, like um, Barma. And I, um, apart from that, that, that first encounter by luck was really the beginning of this work because I then began to realise that the site which I'd chanced upon, which was overrun, which is overrun by these towering river red gums, is actually a very, very important site in itself in that it's the historically most important uh, Islamic cemetery in all of Palestine. It's just outside the old walls of um, the city of Jerusalem. And in the very, the oldest images in this work, you get a sense of where it sits in relation to those walls at a time when there wasn't much outside the old walls of Jerusalem. Um, it was so important that people who didn't live in Jerusalem were brought there to be um, buried. And so in a way that work began with the strangeness of in that very, very ancient landscape, um, in that very ancient city, in a place where people had been buried for many, many hundreds of years, seeing these trees that were familiar from this place. And I guess part of the strangeness of that was to do with the trees themselves, in the sense that, for me at least, those trees, those extraordinary river red gums that you see, for example, around Barma, are extremely evocative of this place and of this place um, and its history of invasion, and particularly the way that those trees often physically bear um, the traces um, of living um, which precede the British invasion of this landmass. But also because trees, both in this context and in the context of a place like Jerusalem, are very, very um, heavily inscribed with a commemorative function. Um, in Israel-Palestine, the role of trees as bearing um, many of the contests over territory is very strong. Um, eucalyptus trees were in fact introduced by some of the very early Zionists in that landscape, so they're very strongly associated with the project of Zionism, and it was Ben-Gurion's favourite tree, the river red gum. So that in that context, the river red gum has a very, very different set of meanings to the one that it does here. Um, and of course, there's a long tradition which is institutionalised in the JNF um, in Israel-Palestine around the use of forests as a way to efface um, process, historical processes of dispossession in that landscape. 
Um, and of course, here we have this uh, a kind of botanical monumental tradition in the form of the Lone Pine, which is a tradition that I'm sure many of you will know where um, a pine cone that was taken from Gallipoli was transplanted to Australia as a way to commemorate um, Australian service in Gallipoli. So that it, the trees in our context are often used um, as a way to commemorate the relationship between places that are kind of psychically or politically close but physically remote. Um, and so th th this work behind me really began with that starting point and the strangeness of the, the appearance of those trees in that ex very extraordinary landscape. Also because that part of Jerusalem is very, very um, rich and contested because it's in the west of Jerusalem. And so the cemetery is at a, a point where the city was divided between 1948 and 67. Um, and just to, in terms of to then take you to the other end of that process, um, what you see here in this gallery, the work ultimately took the form of a kind of an effort to textually describe what it is to walk in that cemetery, to walk from one eucalyptus tree to another. Uh, there are 69 of them. And each of the framed works in the middle band in, in this um, long frieze um, textually describes some aspect of stand, the experience of standing beside one of those trees, very often with reference to the historical photograph above, which stands in some relationship to the particular site in the cemetery. And then at the 69th tree, which is in the third gallery down there, the very, very last um, station in the work, I describe that I then retrace my steps and collect seeds from each of those 69 trees with the idea of planting uh, a doppelganger configuration of those same trees back in this landscape. So what the work is both a walk through that landscape, but it's also an effort to imagine something which is not realised, which is what it would be to make a, a double of that same configuration and to walk that configuration back in this landscape. So in some ways, that strange doubling experience of being there in the first place, of seeing those trees and being both in Jerusalem, but also mentally back here, is something which is structural to the work itself, in that it's an attempt to imagine something which would have us both here and in Jerusalem and doing that work between those two different landscapes, which I think is something which is very strong here in a, because of the way that colonisation makes us often think in that way. It's certainly very strong in that context in Jerusalem, but I also think it's something which is quite structural to landscape, that when we walk in a landscape, we very often have the feeling of being in place in that landscape at the same time that mentally or in an imaginary sense, we find ourselves travelling in other places or through other histories and narratives. At the risk of exceeding the 10 minute, I'll just very quickly describe the second work which is in here and then hand over to Michaela. The second work um, is comparative monument Shalal, which is these mosaic fragments and the two video works um, on my left. And it's really a work that I feel owes a debt to Ryan, who when I was working on this work and uh, looking for images in the remarkable pictorial collections of the Australian War Memorial, he said to me very gently, I think you should look at the Shalal mosaic, <laughs> and, um, which I did. And the, the, for those of you who don't know the Shalal mosaic, it's a, it's a very, very extraordinary early Christian floor mosaic that was discovered by accident by Australian soldiers near, on a hilltop near Gaza in 1917. And um, it's coincidentally, the discovery of the mosaic occurred the same week that the War Memorial in Canberra was conceptualised. And so it was um, s slowly uncovered and then 
removed, or you could say stolen, um, and shipped back to Australia in sections where it was then conceived as the visual centrepiece of the Australian War Memorial. And, and it was built into the War Memorial when it was constructed. Um, but it's also that it's the Byzantine language of that early Christian floor mosaic, which doesn't at all look like a Christian floor mosaic. It looks much more like a Roman floor mosaic. Then informed the architectural language of the War Memorial itself. So the kind of quasi-Byzantine form of the War Memorial, but also the commission um, from Napier uh, Waller, the uh, Australian artist, to create a mosaic uh, dome for the Hall of Memory was partly informed by the presence of the Shalal mosaic in the Hall of Valour below. So the presence of this very extraordinary visual object from uh, Ottoman Palestine then came to inform the commemorative language of the War Memorial. And you have this, now it's very, very hidden, the Shalal mosaic, but there's a kind of very interesting relationship between that um, historical mosaic in the Hall of Valour and then the domed uh, tiles of Napier Waller's mosaic in the Hall of Memory above. And in a way, this work began with a kind of proposition in my mind what it would be to attempt to repatriate that mosaic. What would it be to try to return the Shalal mosaic to the hilltop from which it was taken? And very early on in that project, I actually was very lucky to, to go to that hilltop where the mosaic was taken. And one of the things that's very remarkable about that hilltop is that it's in, in which is in southern Israel, is that it's because it's a it's a relatively tall hill in a very very flat landscape. It's the only place in that landscape where you can see at the very very limits of vision um, both Bir Saba or Beersheba as we tend to call it in Australia and Gaza City. And that the way that you can see both of those places, which have sort of historically so profoundly connected but which are, in a contemporary sense, have such different realities, is something very, very affecting, actually, when you're on that hill. And so part of the work became not just the idea of what it would be to return the mosaic to that hilltop as something to look at, but what it would be to have that mosaic on that hilltop as a place to look out from, in terms of the meaning of the way that that territory has changed. Um, the way that the work imagines that process of repatriation is through taking tiles from Napier Waller's dome mosaic to reconstitute the, the Shalal mosaic. So it's a kind of, um, a kind of um, confusion in a way of visual sources that's designed to produce something which would then go back to that landscape as a very, very different visual object, which bears in some ways the trace of its having lived in Canberra all of these decades. Um, so that the chromatic system of the, the mosaics you see here um, very, very exactly comes from the chromatic system which Napier Waller used in that dome mosaic, domed mosaic to make that amazing incandescent yellow um, glow of that, of that dome, at the same time that it's very, very precisely tile for tile um, exactly the Shalal mosaic. So it's, it's in a way... Um, entangling those two visual sources to, to send a kind of a very different object um, speculatively back to that extraordinary hilltop where those two places can be, um, can be seen together. I might stop now and hand over to Michaela. Uh, thanks, Tom. I wish I could speak as precisely as Tom without notes, but I can't. So I'm going to read some reflections that I've prepared. Um, so I want to start by talking about Tom's comparative monument, uh, Maman Allah, or what I think of um, as the Mamilla Cemetery. 
The work is undoubtedly operating in more than two registers, um, but as an entry point to discussing the piece, I will say that it elicited for me two very powerful modalities of experience. I hope I can weave some of its other registers into my comments, since I feel I must perform a justice to this work, which for me performs an important act of recognition to Palestinians. The first is the experience Tom creates of the immediacy of place, while evoking also the inaccessibility of place. Tom is explicitly performing the act of walking the Mamilla Cemetery, traversing the grounds between each eucalypt, and in that process, he is creating a contemporary archaeology of the site. His documentation of Mamilla Cemetery exposes a cross-section of not only the cemetery's history, but also of Jerusalem's, and by extension, the history of a lost state, and of the violence by which another state replaced it. These all stand one on top of the other, as perhaps the saddest palimpsest of 20th century history. But these are all necessary accretions, and the act of traversal performs an important intervention in the supposed factuality and irreversible concreteness of now. It provides also a tool to the interpretation of a site which is virtually inaccessible if one were only to access the site as it currently appears. Tom writes, this walking is a monument a line to follow these words. This is where the monument ends, but I think it also overlays the work in its entirety as an act of preservation. Through this process, the monument produces a sense of now and not now, of here and an elusive here, separated from us by time and the historical record, but also connected to us by photography, anecdotes, the humor that attends dark histories and Tom's steadfast presence in his Palestine walk. The process of participating in this walk or in the artifact of the monument suggests to me Edward Said's notion of the contrapuntal or of Levi Strauss's idea of the vertical in narrativity that must coexist with the horizontal. These are ideas that sit well with a Palestinian to be present in a place that is more resonant than its present or to work vertically through layers of time as an ameliorating mode to fortify and prepare one for a disastrous horizontality that is the trajectory of Palestinian history until the present. Tom draws us through the cemetery and through time, historic time and personal time. I recognize many of the names on the 13th century inventory of graves because in Palestine, people have a long connection to place because in Jerusalem, we know the names of the great old families. I'm always honored to find that Jerusalemites still know my name. Tom's use of photography, of an eclectic photographic archive, and of his own images intersects with another history, a history of photography, which converges with a 19th century history of pilgrimage to the Holy Land. These convergences mean that there is a lot of international photography occurring in Jerusalem when photography is a new and marvelous medium. There is aerial mapping and there is the luminosity of Palestine for its potential as a geographic resource for the once great powers and there is a romanticized, if rather orientalist industry of biblification for the market of tourism and pilgrimage. This photography industry in Palestine seems to produce two important accidental genres as well. One is that the circulation of photography seems to inspire in the Jerusalemite Palestinians a great love for photography, studio portraits, but also pictures on location, 
in important places, like on excursions to the Jericho Gate, but also in unimportant places, like at picnics or at work or in the home. Early 20th century photography seems to capture Palestinians in far more ordinary attitudes than one typically associates with photography of that era elsewhere. The second is that photography captures in the end day of a Palestine for all its people. It captures early Jewish immigration, not the immigration of fascism, but the immigration of the first Aliyah. It captures sometimes unknowingly the events that changed 20th century history, like the year of the locust or the bombing of the King David Hotel. Tom captures these traces in his text at Eucalypt 43, a stereograph of the year of the locust. He captures this in Eucalypt 9, um, which is just here in this corner, where a man will move his face during the exposure, thus entering Tom's walk and foreshadowing his line of sight towards where Eucalypt 9 will snap in two under the weight of snow. Tom captures this at Eucalypt 22, an aerial view of Jerusalem, ominously dated the 11th of December 1917. He notes, at noon, one, end, one hour into the future of this photograph, Allenby will enter the Yaffa Gate and 1,200 years of Islamic rule will come to an end. So far I have just talked about the experience of this comparative monument as a Palestinian and more specifically as a Jerusalemite but I think it also expresses some of the complexity of maintaining a contemporary relationship and a scholarly practice with something that is gone and not gone, something that is always desired and which is felt as an absence, irrespective of how seriously you engage with what Trump or Netanyahu or Morrison has said or done in the last few years. Walking the monument is very much like walking Jerusalem. It is layered with the personal, the historic, the political and the ethical. I do not think anyone working on Palestine comes without a combination of all these ingredients at their core. And so perhaps in this way, I mean my remarks so far as a monument of admiration for what Tom has created in this work. The second powerful modality of the comparative monument is the formation of a comparison to Australia. I've skirted around its edges up to this point because while the linkages that emerge here are powerful, they are not uncomplicated. The linkages of appropriation and of indigeneity, of solidarity, recognition and identification do not line up into the best ascetic or the most narratively satisfying story. At Eucalypt 2, Tom invokes the name of William Cooper, a yorta yorta man who spent his life devoted to Aboriginal activism and who was an integral figure to the Kamaragunja Walkoff in 1939. This walkoff is echoed in the presence of the River Red Gums at Mamilla Cemetery and punctuated by images of gums at Barma, which form the bottom tier of the monument. Tom negotiates the resonance of the Yorta Yorta diaspora this creates, along with questions of exile, both in and from Jerusalem, all of which converge at Mamilla Cemetery. But Cooper also enters the history of what will become Israel when he embarks on a walk with the delegation of the Australian Aboriginal League in December 1938. The delegation walks from Footscray to the steps of the German consulate in Melbourne, where they are refused entry, to deliver a petition protesting Jewish persecution following Kristallnacht. Cooper's initiative is the only protest of its kind. 
This story was recovered some 60 years later when this walk, which had fallen out of memory in Australia and which did not inhabit Jewish-Israeli memory previously at all, became the premise for celebrating a new forging of relations, the relations of Australian Aboriginals with the Jewish-Israeli state, which in the early 21st century began to construct for itself an indigenous identity, exchanging this for its earlier characterization as Europe below the 40th parallel. In 2008, the story came to the attention of the Jewish Community Council of Victoria, after which a bizarre ritual of cross-cultural recognition was set in train. I think it no accident that this story was only actively revived in 2008, by which time the failure of Oslo was widely in evidence and concurrent with an era in Israel, seemingly less able than ever to acknowledge its role in the dispossession and enduring travails of the Palestinian people. However, this obtained another dimension when the Jewish National Fund arranged a ceremony to honor Cooper's protest by planting several trees, uh, 70 trees in the Martyrs Forest near Jerusalem. The planting took place on Israel's Day of Remembrance in April 2009, and the first tree, planted by Cooper's grandson, was watered with Murray River water and dusted with earth from Yorta Yorta land. Tom, noted at, Tom notes at Eucalypt 24 that such plantings were a method for holding lands so that they wouldn't revert to Arab hands. The entry continues, British law protected trees which provided us with some legitimacy and there was no activity that could hold land as cheaply as forests. Indeed, the symbolism of the tree in its Israeli context is troubling. At Eucalypt 15, Tom notes that the eucalyptus is elected the most Israeli tree. Or again at Eucalypt 23, when he notes, so common was the tree that Arabs began to call it Shajarat al-Yahud, or the Jews tree. The JNF has systematically implemented a project of tree planting, turning vast areas from which Palestinians were depopulated into forests in which each tree and the forests themselves are dedicated in a rather dubious honor to a wide variety of people and events. In the case of the JNF, this not so covertly entrenches the impossibility in a very physical way of Palestinian return. But Tom notes this too, and here he finds, in the absences of villages, botanical ghosts, such as the cacti at Eucalypt 62, or at Eucalyptus 67, where he notes that the footprint of this village is planted out, and yet here he finds a botanical monument to the living they are designed to keep away. To talk briefly about the shalal, do you want me to keep going? Um, so, the comparative monument Shalal speaks similarly to the deep ambivalence of Jewish-Israeli identification with Australia. This mosaic, um, now positioned at the War Memorial in, in Canberra, is reimagined by Tom as a mosaic in perpetual transit with no conceivable option for repatriation. So the Anzac campaign in Palestine has been commemorated by the contemporary state of Israel as forging a strong and special bond between these two nations. It has been marked by the creation of the Australian Soldiers Park in Beersheba, also in 2008, and by a joint stamp issue between the Israel and Australia Post in 2013, commemorating the Battle of Beersheba. At the time of the joint stamp issue, Yuval Rotam remarked on the youth of these two nations and their success in making their deserts flourish. However, more recently, it has been a site of recuperation for Aboriginal servicemen 
who have been widely excluded from commemoration in this country. It is unsurprising that so many Aboriginal soldiers were shipped to Palestine to serve in white Australian regiments since it was in 1917 when it became legal for Aboriginals to enlist in that war. It seems that many of those who enlisted did so as a future and largely failed strategy to negotiate with authorities at home rather than through a desire to serve on the frontiers of a foreign war so wholly unconnected to Aboriginal life. To say only briefly, I think we ought not underestimate the cynicism of Israeli strategy, neither the tree plantings as a solution to making Palestinian removal from land permanent, nor its recognition when the Australian state has been so gross in its exclusion of Aboriginal servicemen in battles more than a century ago. Battles which are mythologized as having an important causal connection to the creation of Israel. To return to the view on the hill from where the Shalal mosaic is recovered, we must remember also to look towards Gaza, the world's largest open air prison, which hangs on the contemporary landscape as a scene of permanent criminality and which hangs on the international media landscape as a place of permanent resistance. In the Palestinian context and in the Australian Aboriginal context, both oppressed by powerful settler colonial states, celebratory messages are hard to find. In walking through Mamilla, there is no clear line but the walking itself. It is this ephemeral thread, this movement through space in time in which acts of acknowledgement replete with their painful paradoxes, might be made to form a living monument to resistance, in which walking becomes an act of tending memory, and in which walking, in sensitive observance, becomes a radical and profound excursion into the nature of resistance in the contemporary reality of Jerusalem, and into the nature of perseverance, of a place that is always here and not here, now and not now, as a testament to the reality of Palestine. Um, just want to start by acknowledging that we're gathered here today or Andre land on Quillan land to pay my respects to elders past and present to acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and that colonization continues in all sorts of big structural ways and in all sorts of everyday ways and in a way what I'm going to read is is I guess part of thinking about how to take that acknowledgement seriously and how to make it not just a thing that is done but how to actually live as, as a settler colony, colonizer on this land. So I too am going to um, read something. So here we go. These pieces are an invitation to reflect on where we personally stand, on how we implicated what we want to do, what we want to see, what we want to make, both in the sense of the physicality of making and the memories and knowledges that we make. These pieces are an invitation to be in a space, as we all are, to think about exile, to think about travel. These pieces are an invitation to think about what justice and solidarity, made descriptive, made tangible, can mean. These pieces invite us to think in fragments, I think, and so I want to offer a kind of mosaic, a series of shards of thought, pieced together haphazardly, maybe, but deliberately. I come, perhaps like many of you, to this exhibition with complicated personal and communal connections. 
On one side of my family, I'm first-generation Australian, the daughter of Jewish migrants who came from Canada, but really came from Belfast before that. On the other side, I'm second-generation by chance. My grandparents were Jewish survivors of the Holocaust, who, after being liberated from Buchenwald and Grossrossen concentration camps, came together in a displaced persons camp in Germany, gave birth to my uncle, and then came to Carlton, where my mother was born. I'm a descendant of survivors of genocide, and in Australia, I'm a settler coloniser. Wherever I am, I'm Jewish. Most commonly, that makes me a member of a small minority. In Palestine, that could make me part of the colonising power. I work against that where I can. I'm required to think through who precisely I'm in community with there, like anywhere. These pieces invite us to ask ourselves where we stand, what we see. They invite us to see ourselves as located in time and space, to recognise the contingency of those times and spaces in which we dwell to note the symmetries and asymmetries, the ways that remembering can help us think of historical resonances, to note our complicity. On my first trip to Israel while doing field work for my PhD, I stayed with my high school best friend who had moved there, made Aliyah, as they say, and we had constant disagreements about what it meant to be there. Both of us had searched for something meaningful to do and be with our Jewishness. I had found myself within diasporism, that set of ideas that say the Jews should be at home wherever we are and in real community with whoever we find ourselves. The self-determination was to come from multiplicity and cultural integrity, not from exclusivist and exclusionary nationalism. She had found herself in Zionism and carried a vastly different idea of what self-determination and living amongst other people could mean. She told me a story about the proliferation of gum trees, one which I've never fact-checked because that seemed beside the point. But she told me that Jews, or maybe she said Israelis, I don't remember, said that Jews had told Palestinians, or maybe she said Arabs, I don't remember. She told them to plant gum trees, and then when they were planted, they knew where to attack from the air. I'm inevitably misremembering the details of this story, but what I do clearly remember is that she told this is a story of Israeli or Jewish ingenuity, of Israel being clever and knowing how to attack and defend to control the people in the land, and I clearly remember being horrified. I remember the feeling of violence. My friend and I are no longer friends. This is a story of displacement and emplacement. These pieces are an invitation to meditate on the violence done and the stories which are told about it. After having researched my family with the help of experts, I visited Poland a couple of years ago, visiting the towns, Częstochowa and Sosnowitz, my pronunciation having been corrected by the woman who sold me train tickets, visited those towns where my family had lived. I stood on those streets, newly understanding what it means to be exiled, to have no place to understand as an intergenerational home. My family quite literally were expelled, pushed out, exiled. On the street at the place where my grandfather had lived with his parents and brothers, there was now a car park. Across the road on the sides of the building, swastikas. What kind of home could this street be understood to be? I said Kaddish for my family, the Jewish prayer for the dead, which is meant to be said only in community, where people can respond to the appropriate lines, but which felt appropriate to be said by myself, at this place where no one could respond. The Yorta Yorta community looms large in Melbourne. For those of us who attended Melbourne University as students at a certain time, we studied with Dr Wayne Atkinson, a Yorta Yorta elder, who took us to Barmer Forest at the end of his subjects. I went up there at the end of first semester of first year, 
sitting on country and learning from him, and went again four or five times over the years. My most profound knowledge of land rights comes from hearing about the Yorta Yorta case, where they were told by the judge that the tide of history, that infamous phrase, had washed away their claims. Colonial law making a claim to override, to displace Aboriginal law, a claim that would always already fail. In December 1939, as Michaela said, to protest Kristallnacht, which is a German pogrom against Jewish businesses, houses, knowledge and people, Yorta elder William Cooper led a delegation from the Australian Aborigines League, walking from his house at 73 Southampton Street, Footscray, to the German consulate. This history was dug up recently by Gary Foley, and last year members of the Jewish community in Melbourne reenacted his walk. From Wayne and Foley and others, I've learned to think about coloniality in this country and to make connections to another country that I've been connected to, Israel and Palestine. These pieces ask us to think about packing, unpacking, being never at rest, always under control. They are a meditation on ways of being together, of being amongst others, of the ways this can be colonial and extractive, violent and aimed at decimation, or it can be based on justice and solidarity, communal collaboration, seeing with new eyes, newly creating, with an eye toward both the wreckage of the past and the possibilities of a just future. How to narrate exile and emplacement, we are invited to wonder. How to view across the violence. Tom stands on a hill and sees Gaza and Beersheba. I was in Jerusalem in 2017. There as part of a delegation in which I and hundreds of other internationals, Palestinians, Jews and Israelis, helped to move a dispossessed family back onto their land in the caves at Sarura in the South Hebron Hills. Before I went to those hills, I stood near my friend's house at the edge of what had once been the Green Line and looked across the West Bank and saw Jordan vaguely through the morning summer fog. What multiplicities can we see when we stand in one place and open our eyes? What knots of, me of memory, as described by Michael Rothberg following Pierre Nora, the famous memory theorist, who together taught us that particular sites can be made to hold memory, and that this memory is a constant process of meaning-making, never fully settled. We are in continual conversation with memorials and monuments and moments to think about how and what and when to remember. The War Memorial is one of the knot of memory. When you go there to see the Talal Mosaic, as I did a few weeks ago when I was living in Canberra, unless you're better at finding things than me, which is entirely possible, you have to go through various rooms and ask for directions twice. You walk past the dreadful, saddening, maddening photos of soldiers from earlier wars, past the frightening soldiers of newer and current wars, past the dioramas, which I just find ridiculous to look at, past the massive uniforms of recent soldiers, and there, behind a wall with no obvious signage, you'll, see them, you'll find the mosaic. What does it mean to be repatriated when you've been kicked out and can't be returned, where my grandfather's house no longer is standing and I don't know my grandmother's address? At the ceremony, uh, sorry, at the cemetery in Chenslachov, which holds space for the generations of Jews who are meant to be buried there, but who are instead exiled and either buried nowhere or buried in newfound homes. I stood at the grave of Rabbi Nahum Ash, the former chief rabbi, who in 1906 officiated at the wedding of my great-grandparents, Yoina Stusky and Rosa Raymond. We are all located in spaces, in an environment. We are all positioned in relation to massacres, to movement, to loss, to violence. Where the Museum of Tolerance, with that laughable name, is being built, is also Mamilla Cemetery, 
where the main synagogue in Chensakov, my grandfather's town, stood, is now a concert hall. On the land where we are in Akka today is Wurundjeri land, and I don't know what precisely was here before. Memory overlays. Just as we ideally hope to learn from, to think with, to remember alongside loss, and to turn towards justice, others learn, think, and remember with the loss, to seek to turn it to more loss. Colonizers, displacers, learn from each other too. There are very few moments of true binaries of good and bad. Most of us live in the in-between. Most of us are culpable. That is the point. 69 seeds inserted back, part exile, part homecoming. How do we repatriate? How do we make a monument to the loss? How do we remember both the visible and the invisible? How do we sit with suffering and turn it into justice? This is the invitation. Thanks very much, Geordie, Michaela and Tom. They're three really powerful talks and I'm starting to quite strongly regret having agreed to go last previously. Um, I'm also regretting not checking that my phone synced before I left home earlier today because the notes that I had jotted down are apparently not with me, so you'll just have to, um, to bear with me as I wing this a little bit. Um, I'm coming at this, I guess, from a slightly different perspective to my three other panellists. Um, insofar as between 2012 and 2018 I was working at the Australian War Memorial where I had um, a reasonably good view onto how memory making gets made at moments of intense commemoration in this country. Um, it was an interesting time to be there for a couple of reasons, one being um, it was in the lead up to and during the kind of rolling four-year centenary of the First World War which was a very large event in Australia, interestingly perhaps larger here than in any other country in some respects. Um, it was also fortunate because it was a period that Tom was working on the comparative, what's now the com a Comparative Monument trilogy um, and the dialogue that I had with him over that period um, was incredibly valuable and became kind of a touchstone in many ways for navigating some of the other memory making that was part of my job. Um, I guess we connected not long after I was there and I was just sort of remembering this morning that I think the very first um, major work of contemporary art that I acquired for the memorials collection um, was Comparative Monument Palestine, the first in this series of works. It's not in this exhibition, but I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. It's uh, sort of five stacks of posters, each bearing um, the image of a First World War memorial um, to Palestine from various sites around Victoria. Um, it was an interesting acquisition process, but that's a story for another day. Um, I think what was really important about that work was it seemed very clearly at that point that the kind of memory that it was um, both modelling and proposing was deeply salutary in the context of the quite, uh, of the way in which memory was becoming sort of immediately instrumentalised even in the lead up to the First World War centenary um, in Australia. I mean centenaries are kind of interesting things because they're moments at which you're asking how do you publicly remember events that no one who's alive can actually recall. It's the point at which memory on the way to becoming history becomes kind of increasingly surrogate um, in a way and in becoming surrogate uh, lacuna open up and it becomes increasingly fragile as well um, and it became very very clear from sort of 2013 onwards that um, as part of this process art was going to be very intensely instrumentalized um, to produce quite politically expedient forms of public memory um, in the absence that this centenary process had kind of created. Um, and I kind of feel like I'm talking around your work kind of quite a lot at this point, Tom, but I'd maybe just give a couple of examples to give you the kind of sense of 
the context from which I was reading what I think is this quite remarkable trilogy of works, um, one which Michaela has touched on briefly and has written really wonderfully about um, in another context was a, the joint um, Australian and Israel post, post office um, stamp issue, which I think was early 2014, which um, featured contemporary sort of photographic montages of the Battle of Beersheba and used um, the anniversary of this event to position it as a kind of point of origin for two young countries um, in, in various quite different ways as Australia's first major military battle and as an event which led ultimately, I guess, to the Belfort Treaty. Um, I guess from where I was sitting at the Australian War Memorial, what was quite interesting about this was that the stamps were one thing, but they were actually put on a presentation card, which was a reproduction of George Lambert's A Charge of the Light Horse at the Battle of Beersheba, which was a work, a very famous painting in the War Memorials collection in which neither of those national post offices had actually sought permission um, to use. It had been effectively appropriated from the War Memorials website, um, put on this card, and then essentially issued in a way kind of, not directly but indirectly, appropriating the institutional authority and imprimatur on an incredibly spurious piece of kind of memory or history making. Um, the other, I guess, kind of uh, key thing that's what happened, I mean, I can give dozens of these examples, but I guess to, this one's a little bit less related to Tom's work, but equally so in terms of the way memory was being made in this period. Around the same time in early 2014 that the stamps came out, it was um, just prior to Chinakali Day in Turkey, which is their equivalent of Anzac Day, which marks the naval victory as opposed to the invasion that was precipitated by the Turkish naval victory. Um, and a particularly kind of feisty um, Turkish tabloid newspaper had found on the War Memorial's website a sculpture by Wallace Anderson from the 1920s. Um, it depicted an Australian soldier on Gallipoli um, at the moment that he'd learnt of the evacuation and their defeat with his foot planted firmly on a Turkish flag. Um, now, in Turkey, there's a lot of very, very strict rules around the treatment of the Turkish flag um, for reasons that date back um, several centuries and quite deeply into history. Um, this newspaper picked up on it in this kind of flag desecration content, uh, context. The headline of the story was Anzac Shame. Um, and we first heard about it when I came into work one morning and opened our general mailbox and there was, I don't know, three or four hundred emails that had been sent in direct response to that. It was very clearly a coordinated um, campaign. We don't know exactly how the newspaper heard about it, but the mails came, came from time to time and sparked, I guess, a kind of minor diplomatic in incident, which I can actually talk about now. I don't work at the memorial, which is quite interesting as well. Um, so basically, as a result of that, we were contacted by the Turkish government and asked to remove... Um, the sculpture from our website and to undertake not to display it at any time during the centenary of the First World War, to which the memorial obviously refused, um, at which point the Turkish ambassador came to visit and he was fairly moderate compared to his um, replacements since then, but um, played quite a hard game and basically threatened that if this didn't come off the website, um, the Tur Turkish government would not participate in any um, Anzac Day commemorative activities in Canberra during the centenary. Um, which was kind of a smart bargaining tool in a way because it was something that, you know, couldn't happen. Um, and he kind of knew that he had Australia over a barrel in that respect. But um, I think what was kind of really interesting about this context was what was at stake here was actually something that nobody could afford to happen because the whole idea with this image and why it was being found so offensive is it was puncturing a myth that both Australia and Turkey had been perpetrating pretty much since, I guess, um, the post-First World War um, period that Gallipoli was somehow a kind of gentleman's war, as if somehow, you know, brutal hand-to-hand -hand combat on a muddy slope could somehow be gentlemanly, and that there was, in fact, a kind of friendship forged in this, in this victory. 
um, which has been the subject of numerous memorials, both in Australia and in Turkey, and was very central to Erdogan, the president who was then sort of trying to tighten his hold on the country, but having troubles dealing with the military, so it implemented some of his own commemorative practices on the Gallipoli Peninsula, that this was going to puncture as well. And then obviously, Australians didn't want to do it, so there was a negotiation in the end, and it wasn't removed, but uh, there was some change to the text, so it didn't literally refer to the flag being Turkish, and that kind of covered everyone off, and save the sort of commemorative relationship um, at that point in time. And I guess the reason I'm sort of telling these stories is because it's very interesting how I think in a way art does get very heavily, as I say, instrumentalised in context, in moments where memory becomes very, very important and there's a lot of nationally at stake with this. And I think in some respects that's not surprising. Um, what was more surprising to me at the time and where um, I find found Tom's work so important to have and to be in this context was that there was a kind of also a lack of um, a capacity amongst public discourse in Australia to deal with this. And there's an unfortunate thing I think we have sometimes in this country where nuance, um, when things become important, um, nuance can often just sort of calcify into polemic. Um, and it felt very much like that was happening. I mean, we all know that there are certain commentators on the right that as soon as anyone sort of makes any commentary about Anzac will sort of stick you in the neck for it at the first opportunity and every opportunity thereafter. Um, and there was in the lead up certainly to Anzac Day murmurings about this kind of, you know, leftist attempt to try and um, erase the, the great Anzac history with a black armband view of history. Um, yet at the same time, the response on the other side to this debate was kind of eerily similar in a way. Um, there was sort of a cohort of historians who I should be very careful to say how I have a great deal of respect for, um, even if I think they were wrong on this particular occasion, like um, Marilyn Lake and Henry Reynolds, who were making this argument that Anzac was itself kind of designed to purposely erase other more important parts of Australian history. And look, there's no doubt that there are parts of history that become more prominent than others at different points of time. But I think there was two kind of issues with this approach in that um, firstly, both sides of this were basically arguing that public memory is competitive. You know, you know, there's only so much space and some memories have to displace others. That's what I noticed you were citing Michael Rothberg earlier. He referred to this as a real estate development model of public memory. Um, you know, it's like a public sculpture park and you can only fit so much stuff in there. Um, and that was the argument both were making. The other argument that both seemed to be making, which bothered me a lot as well, was that public memory comes from above. There's kind of official forces that fight it out to tell us what our public memory is. It's as if, you know, it's kind of patronising because it's as if the public itself has no agency in the generation of public memory. Um, which, I'm getting very close to the end now, so I'll just kind of tie this up. But this is where I think, I think Tom's comparative monument, Palestine, and certainly, perhaps in an even more pronounced way, comparative monument, Shillel, became really important because it seemed like at this point it was coming down to artists to be able to sort of interpret and think through the implications of what was actually at stake um, in this sort of memory contest. And I think the way both of those works um, provides, you know, both a form of comparison in distinction to what was very much a competitive model of memory that was otherwise sort of dominating the public sphere at this time, was deeply, deeply productive, as was um, this idea where both of these works um, provide a kind of a space for interchangeability in the um, the earlier work with kind of like empty plinths and this work provides a platform um, through which public memories can be almost infinitely swapped in and swapped out, generating ever new senses of relationships and perspectives while acknowledging at the same time that it's very much partial um, and, and provisional. Um, and to me that was kind of a 
deeply salutary intervention in, um, even if it was maybe somewhat inadvertent in um, this sort of very specific um, memory discourse that arose over the last six or seven years. Um, I think I'll leave it at that. Thank you. I'm, I'm conscious that there's not a lot of time left before we get to four o'clock, but maybe I certainly had a couple of questions or thoughts in response to all of what you said. Um, and then maybe if there's time, there's a chance for people who might have questions or comments for any or all of us to pose them. Um, one, thank you, first of all. Um, listening to all of you speak, I was reminded of two privileges of being an artist. One is talking with people and researchers and thinkers and activists while you're making a work. And both of these works were profoundly fed by a whole range of dialogues that just um, the works couldn't have even begun to be thought without that. And that privilege, in a way, is echoed by the privilege of listening to the three of you meditate upon these works, which is really when it feels like the work begins to live in a very beautiful way. So, so thank you. I was struck by a couple of things listening to the three of you speak. One was the concreteness of walking. I mean, you, um, Georgie, I think you talked about ground and standing a few times, used those words, and I was very conscious of that in terms of the mosaics, because mosaic making is, of course, a very strange form of picture making in that it's a picture that is designed to be stood upon. And the cemetery is very, very evocative, Mamilla Cemetery in this work, is very evocative of ground because of the way that you constantly conjure the presence of the many thousands of people who have been buried there, but also, of course, because the trees are constantly burrowing into those same strata. So that concreteness of walking feels like it's strong both in these works but also in all of your accounts. At the same time that I'm, I was conscious of the way that both these works attempt to imagine something which is not realised. And that sense of, of an imagined correlation or correspondence or echo or link between places that are remote from each other seems very important both in an individual sense but also in a sense of public memory that you were describing, Ryan. And yeah, I wondered if that was that kind of paradox of both being concretely in a place and traversing it and even that sense of knowing it through your feet um, and what it means to walk at the same time as this, the, the, the way that we're all in different ways led towards imagined correspondences that are also different to the forms of imagined correspondences that imperialism wants from us is something which is sort of is, is present in your own work around these subjects. Would you like to <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I can start. Um, I guess the other layer to that as well is temporality and the experience of when you're walking somewhere or you're um, and particularly through these sites, you're both in the present moment somewhere, you're reflecting on this past, and invariably you're thinking about the future, whether that's what story you're going to tell your friends about this or what meaning you're going to make out of it, um, and also what kind of future do you imagine um, could emerge out of this. And I think we're, we're kind of constantly... I mean, I guess, you know, we've... 
we've all just, you know, gone through that election and politics requires us to imagine a future and to think about what kind of future. And this was not an election that at all inspired us to think about the future or inspired me to think about the future. But, and I, so I think it's also, I think what's also interesting about these pieces is the way that it's, it's memory and it's ephemeral, but it's also real politics, right? And, and it's, it's how do particular, when Allenby, yeah, that, that the moment that Michaela talked about of in an hour Allenby was gonna walk through and end, you know, centuries of, of Muslim rule is, it's breathtaking. It's, it's a phenomenal concept that I don't think we in a present pinprick of a moment can conceptualise what that means for both the past and the future. And to think of, I guess what it made me think of saying in front of that, sorry, I'm rambling, but is we, we can't know what, what we're on the cusp of at any one time and what eras we're about to enter. Um, and I guess, you know, with this recent election, I was thinking a lot, because I research refugee policy, I was thinking a lot about the fact that the 18-year-olds the who are voting for the first time have lived their entire lives in a post-Tampa era. And what does that do to the way in which you can imagine the place of refugees in this country and how you can imagine politics responding to people coming on boat? And... Yeah, the, the different experience of the Tampa election was the first one I voted in and that might have said something about my polit political journey, but we didn't know then that we were on the precipice of this redefinition of politics. Oh, I mean, it's not complete re redefinition, obviously. But anyway, temporality, I guess, is what I would add to that. Just picking up on something that um, Geordie said about... So, Alan, you know, Alan be walking to the old city, but there's a... It's like the, the, the optimism of the darkest times in Palestine, and it's constantly like this. They're constantly on the edge of the apocalypse. And so I think um, for Palestinians, um, the Zionist uh, sort of governmental structures really are part of a continuum of occupation. And so they're like, the Ottomans have left. The British have left. We will be here when everything is done. We can see a horizon through in whatever that might look like in terms of creating a new um, actual and also psychic landscape for, for resistance and for survival. The other thing I think about comparison, and I think it's quite powerful with Jerusalem, is um, I'm quite, I'm fortunate and unfortunate person. I can visit Jerusalem without too much difficulty. I can't stay there for any particular length of time. A lot of Palestinians from there can't visit. Um, and so I think you're constantly looking for um, the creation of something that you have inherited um, elsewhere. And actually before I ever went to Jerusalem, I had a map in my head of what Jerusalem looked like and then I walked it for the first time as if I recognised it. And lots of people can understand this in, in a small way if you think about the fact that if you've ever, you know, seen a picture of the Eiffel Tower and then you go to Paris for the first time and you're like, oh yes, you know, it's a bit smaller than I thought it was going to be or whatever it is. But when you walk Jerusalem for the first time as a Jerusalemite, you walk it with knowledge of stories that actually Tom references in these... Um, in some of these uh, numerical eucalypts. 
Um, and so one quite famous uh, story, actually I won't go into it in graphic detail because it is very graphic and awful, but on the day of the bombing at the King David Hotel in 1946, if you ask a Palestinian who was a Jerusalemite what they know of that day, they would tell you a particular story. And I've met people, I don't know them, um, but they, they have told me the same story that my aunt and my uncle um, told me. And so space is very powerfully recreated through, through the passing on of memory. People who have never been to places can tell you about places they've never been to in intimate detail as if they have been there. And the last comment I wanted to make about that um, is a, a friend of Tom's and, and mine um, did a project on um, imagining the Mamilla Mall area, which was a very major commercial business district in pre-48 Palestine. And it's been almost entirely redeveloped. I think there's two buildings that, uh, buildings that were there in 1948. And I asked my aunt, who's in her 80s, if she'd like to come with me. And she said she wouldn't like to come. And she didn't want to see any pictures of how it is now because they would supplant her very clear memory of what that street was like in 1948. Is now a good moment maybe to see if there are questions or... Does anybody have any questions? I'll bring the microphone round to you. Nobody? No questions? Oh... Um, thank you, everyone. Thank you in particular to Tom. It's really uh, amazing work. I have just one quick comment and one question. Um, just in, in relation to the discussion about what um, what is memorialised and what isn't, one of the things that really struck me about the whole centenary of Anzac, so-called, um, and what you were just talking about before is... Um, the lack of commemoration of 2000 and, uh, sorry, of 1919 within that, um, because sort of the Anzac, the creation of Anzac, didn't sort of end in 2000, in sorry, 1918. It continued on, for example, in the Light Horse Brigade suppressing Egyptian independence, for example, and that's a story of the Light Horse Brigade that is never, ever told, really, in Australia. Um, <clears throat> so that's a comment. Uh, my two questions are, what role do you think there are for memorials, um, actual physical created memorials outside the gallery uh, to commemorate these moments that we do ignore in our, in our memory? So obviously the recent um, installation of the memorial to the two uh, Aboriginal resistance fighters who were, who are hung in Melbourne is an example of that. But how do you see a role for those types of monuments in contemporary Australia? And then just in relation to the River Red Gum, I, I suppose I just want to ask a question about: Have you thought through, or is there a relation to your work around the the coming extinction of the River Red Gum that we're experiencing at the moment? And is that something that's influenced how you've thought about the the River Red Government, given the, the context of climate change and so on. Thanks for the um, comment and the questions, Damien. Um, the just in answer to the first one, 
in some ways, this whole show is, an, is, a, is a provisional, modest, and possibly muddled attempt to answer that question from within the gallery, of course. Um, because I think on part of what's interesting about the monuments that we, that we have inherited and that we have is that they, they contain a lot of Freudian slips. I mean, they contain a lot of inadvertent meanings. And, and the first work that I made around the kind of linkages and echoes between Palestine and Australia that, that, that Ryan mentioned was an attempt in a way to animate in those things a meaning which wasn't ever intended for them. That they would in some way, that they, because they bear the name Palestine, they bear a polity that um, many aspects of our contemporary politics would want to efface. So there is a sense in which the, pop, the, the, way, the landscape that we inherit of, of dubious monuments that would elicit relationships of servitude to, to, to London, also they contain the beginnings of other thinking and also they contain the beginning of, I think, lateral connections that are not through London, that are, um, you know, between... that may be ways to elicit those forgotten histories like the 1919 history that you're talking about. For the most part, though, I think their whole language is to be repudiated. In a way, there's a bind in needing to commemorate or monumentalise um, histories that have been effaced or willfully forgotten in that it's important that we also revise that very commemorative language itself. You know, like all of the things that a classical monument wants, like its verticality, its permanence, the way it desires to fix meanings, and its overblown visibility that paradoxically produces a kind of like obliviousness in us because we stop noticing them because they want to be seen so much. So I don't think that that's an argument against artworks in public space because I actually think that like the Morbihino and Tam Inouye work is a very good example of an attempt to grapple with this question. And having artworks in public space, in, in our collective space that are addressed to our collective thinking and futures and, you know, to borrow Geordie's beautiful phrase or to mangle it, to, that would be towards justice and solidarity is a real project for artists, and not just for artists, for many other people who work in public service. And it's a, um, but I think it does entail many ways of repudiating the monumental language that we've inherited, and that means certain binds, particularly around the question of visibility, which is a word that's actually come up quite recurrently today, that um, we need different languages of visibility, particularly in this country, to. Um, and that's, that's a, a very, very curious and interesting bind for monuments because monuments trade in an overblown and absurd visibility in a way. Um, the second question, it, it, it's, that is only really, I would say it's only latent in this work. There was a moment uh, a few years ago when it looked like I could realise the work in a defunct arboretum in Canberra. Uh, it was going to be very intricate, including with the quarantine system. But that was a very extraordinary place to think about realising this work, to plant these 69 river reds that would then grow through these matrices of an arboretum which has cork trees and all kinds and um, pine trees that were planted in like the 1930s in Canberra. And that was a moment when I, I began to think about the arc of time that the work involves. Because I thought, I'm actually, if this, when this happens, I'm not going to actually see this work. I, my, my, if my children might. <laughs> um, but because the, thi the thing has a, a slowness about it that is part of the appeal, of course, in botanical monuments, also of the regressive kind, that they seem to 
set something into the landscape for a very long time and the, you know, the, the roots of the trees literally kind of bury into that land and make claims upon it in a, in a regressive way. But the, I think one of the interesting things about that is it makes you think about artworks in terms of longer arcs of time, including ecological arcs, which of course are radically accelerated in our current situation. But it definitely makes... Uh, and one of the curious things about that site is it's one of the few sites in the southeast of Australia where river reds are not endemic. Like, there's not a single river red in the National Capital Authority's register of trees in Canberra. Um, I mean, I'm sure, they're, 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 I'm sure there are in people's gardens, but it's not endemic, actually, to that landscape. So as part of that kind of um, complicated form of repatriation, that, that those trees would have been planted in a landscape where, they, where they're not endemic. But I think that, that the question of how we th yeah, think those longer arcs of time is... Is, is like the monument question is one of the most pressing and difficult questions for artists actually. And when you, as soon as you start working with uh, processes like botanical ones, of course you you can't help but think about them. One more quick question, really quick one. Anybody? All right. Well, does any, do, do, would any of our speakers have any final comments? Anything you'd like to add? Maybe we'll wrap it up. If you want to come and talk to them afterwards, feel free as well. Um, but thanks, everyone, for coming. Thanks for listening. And um, please join me in thanking our speakers for today. You have been listening to an ACCA podcast recorded by ACCA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art in Melbourne. To listen to more from us, Subscribe to ACCA on Apple Podcasts or follow ACCA on SoundCloud. To find out more about our exhibitions and programs, visit acca.melbourne and sign up to our mailing list.